Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1382, entitled What's the Matter? Katana Got Your Tongue? Our podcast title is <laughs> Ghost Pod. <laughs> I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And today we are talking about a couple of samurai movies, or Chanbara. And these can be found upon SBS On Demand. Yes, On Demand (laughs) and free. So we thought we'd branch out onto another streaming service today. Yeah, we've been to SBS before. What was the last one we did on that? Uh, New Gold Mountain? Yeah, the New Gold Mountain series about... um, Gold, searching for gold in early Australia. Mm-hmm. Which is still on there, by the way. I noticed the other day that if you haven't caught up with that one yet on our recommendation, mm. there is still time. Mm-hmm. All right, just to begin with, I wanted to mention something that you've probably all seen out there in Zero G land, the trailer for Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness. Mm. Just a couple of things I wanted to geek out about there. Wanda. Yes. Wanda, we loved her always, but I think she's really solidified her place in our hearts after WandaVision. I know that's definitely my feeling, so very happy to see more of her in this film. Mm. And another character called America Chavez. Mm, Yes, making her appearance for the first time. Mm. She has been in some of the animated sort of cartoons and stuff, but this I think is the first live action one that she'll be in. I mean, we needed to do a quick look at this because – that's Patrick Stewart's voice. Yes. So, and that opens up a lot of questions about mm. what character he might be playing and what that might imply for the directions of the story. Well, look, it is called multiverse, but I don't think they're going as far as him being Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> that would be a stretch. I would like that. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. And speaking of stretch, actually, we believe that he's part of the Illuminati, which is a, a gathering of superheroes who are essentially like the powers behind the scenes mm. in the Marvel universe mm-hmm. across multiple universes. And that's, I'm guessing, is somehow what they're going with here, in which case he'd be playing Professor X. And it also opens up the door for maybe they're going to incorporate, because they're doing a new Fantastic Four, Reed Richards is also involved. So will they be casting him? Yes, well, that's where the stretch comes in. <laughs> and also uh, possibly Namor, mm, mm-hmm. mm, the man from Atlantis, so to speak. And that means that they might also have Black Bolt in there. Mm-hmm. I guess it depends upon how they do it. Yeah. You know, that might be reading way too much into it. It might be just somebody who sounds like Patrick Stewart. Oh, no, they wouldn't do that to us. But, yes, they would do that to us, but fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, yes, X. <laughs> the entire internet melted down when this trailer dropped yeah. too. This is like, ah. The power of Patrick Stewart's um, deep tenor. I mean, it just, you know, threw us all well, into a frenzy. It's more than that. It makes us wonder if they're going to drag the entire X-Men universe in, in one fell swoop. Mm. And we might even see 
huge axeman there again. Well, this is what I thought is both he and Patrick Stewart said they'd hung up their hats with the X-Men franchise with Logan. So Mm. I wonder. Yeah, well, if you pay enough money to people, they will generally pick those hats up again. I mean, maybe that's how they got peace Stew, but I'm not sure about Hugh Jackman. I reckon he thinks he's too old for the claws. Peace (laughs) Stew. Oh, dear. What would you call Magneto, (laughs) the actor? (laughs) Again, more Easter eggs in it. There's a a mysterious armoured figure Mm. glowing gold and flying towards annihilation or attack or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, look, it could just be some variation of one of the characters we're familiar with, like like Captain Marvel or something like that. She gets all familiar character. She gets all sparkly and that sort of stuff, but who knows? The speculative cash is laid down on it being uh, Tom Taylor's character, Superior Iron Man, Uh which is a a really nasty take on Tony Stark Mm. if he'd sort of stayed bad but still did the Iron Man thing. And the fervor, and we're way out on a limb here, we're very, very far out, is that it might be being played by Tom Cruise. (laughs) Yeah, he's had a long-term interest in the Iron Man franchise. That is a far limb, but I would kind of like to see it because I think the world would implode. If he was pulled into the Marvel Universe, And in the poster for Multiverse Madness, Mm. there's lots of different shards splintering out, obviously, to show the, the many different universes. And on one of the shards, if you magnified it, there's Captain Carter's shield Mm. with the British flag on it. Ooh. (laughs) Because that was very popular in the What If Animated series. Mm. Yeah. So I think, oh, yeah. Or are they just messing with us? Well, they may well be. When I did a bit of poking into it after I'd watched the trailer, I realised that there's a lot of references or throwbacks to the What If episode. And so as someone who didn't pursue the rest of What If, I'm thinking I might need to go back before I watch this film. Mm, exactly. Oh, the Watcher will do it for us, I'm sure. <laughs> and the second Marvel thing I wanted to talk about was Cloak and Dagger, uh-huh. which is a two-season live-action television series now on Disney Plus streaming. Mm-hmm. And this originally came from their cable channel. So this was part of that whole package of different Marvel shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then there was the Netflix ones as well, you know, that we've talked about before. And this one sort of uh, tucked away there. It got cancelled when they started up the new Marvel MCU sort of television arm, so, you know, WandaVision and all of that. But it got its two seasons before it was cancelled. Those two seasons are self-contained and can be watched independently with only the usual curse you sky gods at the end when they don't continue, but it does actually finish out the story. So, you know, it's really good. It's like Netflix, Marvel Mm. standard, Mm. a little less graphically violent. Okay. What's the premise? Okay. There's the two title characters are codependently powered young adults in New Orleans. So they both have superpowers, which they come into in the show and they're interlinked. So... And it's not like Wonder Twin powers activate. There is a, a strong linkage between the characters because of their origin mm-hmm. and their powers are kind of complementary. And it's actually brilliant. It's very engaging. It's set in New Orleans, so the setting mm. is quite 
unusual for the MCU. It's not New York. Mm, mm, mm. No. It is based upon some 1980s Marvel comic characters, and they haven't had too much of a spotlight before. Right. And, and that's allowed them to do a whole lot with this. There are some references to the MCU huh. in this. Some just little moments where somebody says, "Oh, you should uh, meet my friend, uh, Detective." Uh, oh, you know. Okay. <laughs> or they're reading a newspaper and there's a, a big thing in it about, uh, you know. Right. So they have got some linkage there. Linking to the does- MCU or the Netflix Marvel or the Disney or the Disney Marvel. Netflix Marvel, actually. Right, right. So like your Jessica mm. Jones era. Because it is set in New Orleans, there is a an element of voodoo in it. And as far as I can tell, which is to say I have read some articles about voodoo, <laughs> basically, is quite respectful of that and also quite detailed. And I thought this is quite unusual. So it's an interesting show, well worth a watch. It's called Cloak and Dagger and it's on Disney+. Plus. And, yeah, only two seasons, but it does actually end in a logical place. Mm-hmm. And if they ever decided to pick them up, oh, yes, there, and there's a crossover with another Disney Plus series called Runaways, which was also Uh, uh cancelled. Yep, yep, yep. So something to watch if you haven't had enough of Marvel. (laughs) All right, so (laughs) we're going to talk about some samurai movies on SBS Mm. on demand. Well, we'll give you a a little sample of some sound bites from the first movie, and this is Forrest Whitaker playing the character of Ghost Dog in Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Triple R. Forrest Whitaker there from Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Jim Jarmusch. Mm. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, we've looked at some of his films before, but I think I like going back to his earlier filmography. We've been trying to look to some other streaming for options. What was it that caught your eye about wanting to cover Ghost Dog today? Basically, just the fact that it was there. Mm-mm-mm. It was kind of engaging. That had a couple of Chan Butter movies there. And I thought, there's a theme there. Mm. And they're going for that too. They had a little write-up on mm-hmm. it. I thought, mm-hmm. why not? Let's have a shot at this. Nice. It is a classic actually mm. now. It feels like it was done centuries ago now. So, okay, you've got Jidageki, period drama, Japanese movies and television shows, Mm -hmm. and Chanbara is a subcategory of that. And so we're really talking about samurais and swordplay, and I've heard it described as being parallel to westerns and swashbuckler films, pirate movies in some cases, if depending upon the samurai. We're well familiar with these movies on Zero-G, mm. you know, the famous arcs of Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, the spin-off, the Crimson Bat with the female blind sword fighter, Lone Wolf and Cub, recently resurfaced in the context of The Mandalorian with Mando and Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, I can't call him Grogu. <laughs> <laughs> In that one, they've got this samurai traveling around with his son in a wooden pram. And the pram, of course, has got like machine guns and mines and (laughs) all sorts of stuff. Or you've got the many, many stories and movies and TV shows spun around the classical samurai Miyamoto Musashi, the sword saint. Mm. And then there's Sanjiro, you know, the most famously uh, Toshiro Mifune, a wandering Ronin character. So he plays a Yojimbo bodyguard. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, there's so many of these things that you can go on forever saying what they are, but that's just to give you an idea of, and of course, 
these have had influences upon Western movies. You know, we all know The Seven Samurai and The Magnificent Seven and all that kind of complicated East meets West, the interplay between those, Akira Kurosawa and John Ford, influencing each other backwards and forwards. Then, of course, you've got the Spaghetti Westerns, which also have done the same kind of thing. And later on, George Lucas with Hidden Fortress and Star Wars. We've had so many French films too. And then there's Ronan and Toshiro Mifune in Red Sun, Red Sun being an an Eastern Western set in the Old West. (laughs) Charles Bronson there opposite Mifune. Been quite a lot of backplay between this. And then Tarantino picks up on all of these references and munges them together. And and so that brings us really to Ghost Dog, (laughs) The Way of the Samurai, because this is a Western film about a hitman who adopts a samurai code Mm. in a then modern-day city, Mm -hmm. an unidentified city, really. They do play around with the number plates and stuff, except for the fact that it's obviously filmed in Jersey City Mm. in New Jersey. (laughs) So Ms. Marvel turf there, she doesn't show up, though. (laughs) So that sort of sets the tone for it. Who is our ghost dog working for? He's working for... Kind of the mafia, mm. but like a, a B team mafia. You reckon? I mean, yeah, that, that's what it feels like. They're like they're not the top gangsters. They're mm. not the the most well oiled guns in the arsenal. Mm. No, in fact, they even have trouble paying the rent on their HQ. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> they kind of positioned as these gangsters on the way out in a way, like you know, they're a bit old and tired and a bit rusty and a little bit rough around the edges, I suppose. They're starting to feel a bit obsolete, and I think those tropes are played with a bit, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Now, our ghost dog, played by Forrest Whitaker, mm-hmm. he is very much bound by this samurai code, which has cleaved him to being the retainer of a particular gangster called Louis. Mm. And all the gangster names are exactly what you'd expect. You know, Johnny the Knife, Jimmy the Shark, Sonny, mm. you know. It's straight out of The Godfather or indeed any of the other spin-offs of that because that's an entire genre. So here you actually have the gangster genre mm. intermeshed with the samurai genre. We've actually seen that a lot of times before. It's happened all sorts of places. Mm. But this is Jim Jaramouche, so directing it. So in this case... It's got an overlay of absurdist humour. Yeah, and I think he also brings an urban element to it, like in terms of the city and the grittiness of the streets and that kind of element. It's very like strong realism in a way. He has sort of overlaid that as well in amongst all these quite ridiculous situations. And, yeah, I, I have actually watched this a long time ago, but I'd forgotten until I started watching it. But I was like, oh, it's actually a mafia film as well, quite strongly, mm. as well as being obviously influenced by Western samurai and so on genres too. We see that's also part of the modern Japanese samurai movie trend, gangsters and samurai mixing together and codes of honour yeah. and the whole thing, yeah. you know, Yakuza and, and that sort of element. And, and that obviously is played with by Tarantino too in Kill Bill and so on. Mm. Anyway, the book that he read from that Forrest Whitaker quoted from at the start when we gave that little soundbite is Hagakura. And this is a guidebook for samurai and this was written by a retainer in the 17th century. And This was in a time when, you know, you really weren't allowed to officially have samurai Mm. combats and duels and so on. But 
it's kind of about how do we keep being samurai when there is no war and no fighting to actually be involved in. So it's actually quite complicated. Later on, it sort of got a particularly unpleasant reputation as being a guidebook for the samurai during the Pacific War, mm. the officer class, that is. So, you know, there's all sorts of elements in there. And you wonder where the Forrest Whitaker's ghost dog, so-called because he conducts hits like a ghost. We wonder where he got that book from. Did it come back with somebody from World War II or, you know, that sort of thing? Or, but books are very important mm. in here. On his bookshelf, and they give this little look at his, the bookshelf in his shack, the autobiography of Malcolm X mm. and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. You know, a lot of books about lost causes mm. and noble ends and stuff. So mm. you, you feel like the stage is set there. And it's not just in his eyes that books are important in this film. We've also got a copy of Rashomon, mm. which floats around, famous Akira Kurosawa film, which is told from several different viewpoints mm. so that each one shades differently. So you could actually think of that for this film too. Yeah, one of the nice notes I really liked about the Rashomon thread goes throughout this reference this book he has and they talk about one of the stories they like where characters remember an event from differently. They both remember it differently and there's a parallel where Louie and Ghost Dog both remember how they met but there's slight differences and I thought that was yeah. just a nice little clever way of having that parallel there. Because Jeremy Bush actually knows his pop culture. There's a, a, a copy of Frankenstein that floats around. And speaking of floating around, it's a little bit like the meeting between the monster and the little girl by the lake mm. in that particular story. And or the movie, which they actually reference in this too, saying that the book was better than the movie. <laughs> There's even a copy of, and I swear, I don't know if this is a deep Marvel reference, a copy of a book called Night Nurse. Mm. And that's a, a Marvel character too but it might be just for the lurid cover. I can't quite tell. So this sounds like, okay, you've got the uh, the ghost dog who's working for the mob, basically. He's really good at doing hits, and we've seen this plot in a lot of movies. He does something off track or mm. that doesn't quite gel with what the mafia does, or they decide to fit him up for something. You know, we've seen that a lot of times. Yeah. Then that's it. They're after him themselves. So you've got the professional hitman who now is being chased by his employers. But, of course, if they were any good at killing people, they actually wouldn't have to contract out. They wouldn't have to subcontract. That's the rest of the story. But before we get there, it's actually a long time before mm. we get that rampaging riot of revenge. And the reason for the revenge is actually kind of hilarious, mm, mm. why it's a revenge piece. I mean, you know, otherwise it would be just be I'm trying to stop these people from killing me, which is not necessarily revenge. And there is a reason for that, but I won't go into that because I think that might be going a bit too far. And I just love Forrest Whitaker in this movie. Yeah. There's so many opportunities for him to really lean into a kind of very solitary energy. But then he's also doing these incredibly violent things, which he's obviously filtering through this idea of it being all part of his samurai code. And, you know, he lives with very sparse means, like you mentioned before, and there's kind of all these rules and interesting ways he's set up with Louis and, you know, the arrangement that they have, which I think, you know, the pigeons and birds play a, a big role in the film too and his relationship to them. And I think Forrest Whitaker just, you know, you have to be amazing to carry this kind of movie, which is an odd film. Yes. <laughs> and he's certainly up to the challenge and does such a beautiful job of, of holding this all together. Well, you know, I've seen him as Idi Amin in The uh, Last King of Scotland uh, and uh, what was he in? Uh, oh, he played Missouri in Black Panther. 
Mm, yeah, he did too. The elder statesman. That sort of thing in there. I was in Rogue One too. Oh, like, it's not not yeah. all that brief, but you know. So anyway, he he's quite solid in this. Doesn't quite look the part of an old classical samurai, but it doesn't matter because he's pulled into the the modern aspect of the role here, mm. and it feels right. I love the way he puts his gun away. Yeah, there's definitely flourishes that they've done that he does yeah. on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, it's clearly, here is my weapon, it is my sword, it goes away like my sword, mm. Kachunk. Mm. It's great. And he's very professional. He's like Jean Renault in The Professional, that sort of level of competency. And you pity any fool who goes up against him in this. And that's actually where you do land up at times because the mafia guys or the gangsters, they are pitiable mm. in a lot of ways. They're, they're over the hill. They're not that bright. There's a scene where they're clambering up to, searching for his shack on the rooftop in the city. And you can tell that they've, like, climbed up about 20 flights of stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just wasted them, you know. Yeah, I so, think it's interesting, though, They the film, it does portray them as being quite, you know, laughable in a way. But then there's some very poignant scenes that stem from, you know, they're they're still at the end of the day capable of quite a lot of destruction, I think. And... Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like, oh, these guys are absolute buffoons, but at the end of the day, they're still killers. <laughs> and-, and also subject to the rules of a Jaramish movie, like the absurd conversation that the gangsters have about rapper and Native American Indian names. And you can see where Tarantino gets some of his stuff from, the effect of that. Uh, uh, Henry De Silva, actor who plays one of the gangsters in this, um, one of the senior gangsters, he likes watching Felix the Cat cartoons. Yeah. Why? And little things in this, like the hints of violence to come that we get, like there's a, a little vignette, and that's often the way in a Jamish film, as you're walking past, you see uh, a potential mugging taking place in a car park mm. where a guy comes up to another guy in a, a car who's got his groceries, putting him into the boot of his car, and it starts to go down, and then the elderly gentleman putting the groceries away unleashes a series of spin kicks and, and takes the other guy out. Obviously a Kung Fu master. Played incidentally by Shi Yan Ming, Jaramush's actual Shaolin instructor. And that sort of thing gives you this undertone of there is the capability for tremendous violence in this film. And there is, mm. you know. Mm. There are so many other films encoded in this one, of course. There's, a, there's lots of reference to Sage and Suzuki's Branded to Kill, and the Jean-Pierre Melville 1967 movie Le Samurai. Mm-hmm. So, again, more Tarantino pastiching there. But it's a good pastiche, so we'll... Yeah, and I think he doesn't really approach it the same way Tarantino does. Like, I think no. this is very much more about... I, I think it feels a much more holistic vision from Jarmusch's part. And I think he always does that really well, where he'll want to explore a genre and then he'll do that to his utmost. Whereas I think Tarantino just grabs and starts pushing things in a bag to see what's going to work out, which, you know, is its own style and it works really well. But I think Jarmusch does something where he goes, I want to go down this path. I'm going to absorb everything I know about this genre and then I'm going to do something through my lens. Um, And I think that's what makes it quite special because I do just want to drop a mention as well of music. I mean, Jarmusch, music plays a really strong role in a lot of his films. And so the score and soundtrack for this film is actually produced by RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. And there's a lot of good music on the soundtrack as well from Wu-Tang Clan, Killer Priest and Public Enemy. And I like that 
that has incorporated as well, that music has a really strong role and kind of explores how Ghost Dog feels a bit alienated in the world, even in his own communities as well. And so I really enjoyed, um, I really liked the music in this. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Yeah. Let's hear from Forrest Whitaker again, quoting from his favourite book. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. Hmm. I almost forgive him for being in Battlefield Earth because of this movie. Oh, Forrest don't Whitaker. remind me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that? Oh, I don't think so, thankfully. No, you are so lucky. <laughs> Look, we've mostly talked about Whitaker, but he's supported by a deftly quirky ensemble cast that plays knowingly off old Hollywood and television actors who've been cast before many times as villains, including John Tormey's long-suffering Louis, Ghost Dog's immediate boss. You could make an entire film just about him. Jaramusha's staple cast member Isaac de Bancol reliably plays Raymond, the ice cream truck operator who befriends Ghost Dog, while then child actor Camille Winbush has a neat turn as Perlene, the little girl who may just possibly inherit some of Ghost Dog's alarming ways at some point in the future, although it could just be Jaramush being satirical about the way potential sequels get planted in movies. All good anyway, and expertly judged in a perfect setting for Whitaker's star turn as the taciturn assassin with a philosophical bent and an amusing hobby. The contrast with the precision mayhem that he's used to dealing. It's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. It's a Jaramush film. It's from the, what were we talking about, 1999? Nine. Yeah. 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 It was, at the time, another great string to Jaramush's bow. And, mm. you know, this is the guy who did Dead Man, the Gothic Western uh, mystery train. And that's one of the things I wanted to point out with this. There's a fascination with Japanese expat culture mm. in that and sci-fi pop culture as well. Yeah, mystery train's actually one of my favourites of his. And, of course, The Dead Don't Die, the satirical, whimsical, absurd zombie movie, and Only Lovers Left Alive, that poignant meditation about the ennui of being an immortal vampire with those two born-to-be-vampire actors, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. (laughs) So, yeah, this one goes right into that list of ones that just fit perfectly into Zero G's odd genre category. I would give this a definite hate as a, yeah, nah, maybe rating for Zero G's thing. It's it's just a perfect film. I really love it. As I said, when I was watching it again this time, I started to remember bits and pieces of it. But just the energy of the film and just how strange it is. But, you know, once the plot gets going, it's really quite engaging. I really, really like this one. I agree. I think it's a really nice exploration of a man's quest for meaning. There's also a kind of strange calmness to it. Yeah, it has a very distinct energy, doesn't it? Which is why when things get a bit muddled up towards the end, I really felt it. Like I really felt like my peace, my oasis, you know, was been invaded. Well, that's a good point. Now, the song I wanted to play here, to me, symbolises the walking around the mean streets of the city Mm -hmm. when the most dangerous thing on the streets is clearly the ghost dog. And everybody seems to know him, Mm. but no one seems to actually know him. Yep. You know, he seems like he's friendless, but he's not. The guy in an ice cream truck who's uh, his best friend. Yeah. And again, it's about communication and it's about mm. 
making connections in interesting ways. I have read an analysis of this film that says, what if a lot of the stuff, his daily interactions with people are in his head? Mm. None of that actually happens because he's quite unhinged. Mm. Oh, I don't want to think that. I'd rather think that it was real. Yeah, okay. Well, let go out (laughs) from this with a piece of music which is very much in that sort of Luke Cage strolling through Mm. the streets. And this is called Walking Through the Darkness. And this is Walking Through the Darkness by Tekitha, and it's from the soundtrack album Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Tikitha Washington with Walking Through the Darkness. She's one of the Wu Tang Clan affiliated female vocalists. And that is from the soundtrack of Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, Jim Jaramush. And that is on SBS On Demand. Mm, highly recommend. Made me feel very melancholy, but in a good way. <laughs> so moving on from that, I had a couple of little tidbits that I just wanted to mention before we move into our second samurai film. So recently announced of very strong interest to me is that Netflix is making a Bioshock movie. So Bioshock is a video game franchise that currently has three installments. There is talk of a fourth, but the original Bioshock came out in 2007. And so this is very good news. I feel very excited because it's a video game franchise with a very strong visual concept and a very strong vibe and kind of art direction. And so I'm hoping that Netflix will pursue it with a strong rating that is going to allow for the horror that I think needs to be included and also a budget big enough to make Rapture look stunning and glittery and bloody and everything (laughs) it needs to be. So the film, it is going to be a film. I was wondering if maybe it was a series, but no, it is a film and it's going to be produced in combination with Netflix and 2K, who did the video game franchise, and Take Two Interactive. There's no news of a director or a cast yet, so I'm curious to hear more on that. As I mentioned a little bit before, the first two games were set in the glowing neon underwater city of Rapture, and it has a very kind of art deco 60s steampunk vibe. And so I'm really hoping that obviously this is the setting that they're going to pursue for the first film. It's quite interesting because Uncharted was just released in cinemas. That's another video game to film franchise. Uh, and I haven't seen that yet, but I'm very keen to. And there's also adaptations of Borderlands, Ghosts of Tsushima, which might be one that would be good for us to cover. And also The Last of Us um, with Pedro Pascal has been cast in that as well. So those are all things that are in the works. So I am hoping we are in for an uptick in video game movie quality because we've had a few, quite a few misses in the past. And there was actually a Bioshock adaptation in the works previously with Gore Verbinski attached. So this was around 2008, actually right after the first game came out. And John Logan was attached to write that one. So he's worked on Aviator, Skyfall, Penny Dreadful, Hugo, Sweeney Todd, Last Samurai, very topical. 
Star Trek nemesis to his discredit. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's brush right over that one. But So he was attached to write the script. Verbinski was very engaged with the whole concept. He really wanted to keep the horror and do the setting, you know, to its utmost, which meant the studio was very much scared off by the R rating that the film was going to require and the budget that it was going to require. So that's kind of what killed it dead in the water, so to speak. Uh, and it was <laughs> confirmed dead around 2011. And so everyone drifted away. And I think Verbinski is still quite passionate about the product. So I wonder if he'll pursue Netflix to see if he can get a role in in this movie. But so just wanted to drop a mention of that. We know very little, but my hopes are there because I do think Netflix has the budget to make this great. Hey, you had me at armoured cyborg diving in battle suits. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's definitely going to be some good stuff in this that's going to appeal to you, Rob, I think. so. Oh, yeah. Big daddy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's see how that one all pans out. I'm sure it's in the distant future, but we'll be keeping tabs on that. The second mm-hmm. quick mention in a similar vein of video game to visual media is the Cuphead show is now showing on Netflix. So Cuphead's a video game that was released a couple of years ago in 2017 and the energy of Cuphead, which is kind of a platformer, a shooting platformer, uh, it's got a golden age of animation art style. So the graphics are very much about like early Mickey Mouse, early Flasher Studios. So the concept art of Cuphead is amazing. It's a very difficult game. I've played it. It's really hard, but the show is 12 episodes and they're very short each episode, 10 minutes each, which very much fits into that ye oldie animation, you know, kind of format. And it basically just follows Cuphead Cuphead and his brother Mugman as they make their way through the colorful world of Inkwell Isles. So that one is another one that I might check out on Netflix and that's available now to watch. So no waiting required on that one. Is this you carrying on with your passion for beauty and the beast singing furniture? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Only if it's in a very cute animation style, which this one definitely is. So I'll probably check that one out. But yes, yeah, so that's my video game slash film and TV tidbits that caught my eye this week. Speaking of catching eyes, and since we're talking about a Takeshi Miike film next, that's about appropriate. We've been looking at a couple of Chanabara Mm. samurai movies on SBS On Demand, Mm -hmm. and so you can stream them for free using their little app. Mm -hmm. And this one is, you know, we've been talking about other samurai films at the start of the show today, mm-hmm. and we talked about some of the different strands of that. You know, there are directors like Daisuke Ito, mm-hmm. Masahuro Makino pre-war, and mm-hmm. Akira Kurosawa, Masaki Kobayashi, Hideo Gosha, Kenji Misumi. The list goes on in the East, at least, and, you know, it spreads over into Hong Kong movies as mm. well, into Waxia films. And obviously, Jeremush is a Western interpreter of that. But here we go back into a more modern director, so to speak, Takeshi Miki. Mm. And every one of his films that comes out is an event. Oh, and he's got a lot, and there's a lot of splatter and gore and action usually and disturbing content. That's the name of his attorneys, splatter and gore. (laughs) Blade of the Immortal 2017, now on SBS On Demand, and it is, of course, based upon Hiroki Samura's manga series. Mm -hmm. 
And there was a, a couple of anime series, actually, if I recall that correctly. And the manga originally came out in uh, 1993 and ran for 30 or so volumes until 2012. I have seen parts of the anime series, and it was pretty well done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the author of the manga is very generous about Mickey's film. You know, he said, right. I kind of like the way that they – change things up in these adaptations because he's the author and he's seen it all right right. and the artist you know so he knows what it's about so he likes to see an intelligent change the opposite of the alan moore (laughs) school of thinking yeah (laughs) so this is uh mickey's 100th film yeah really (laughs) yeah i knew he was prolific according to the stats but that's Uh, yeah and that's this is a few years ago now too gosh and it's like there isn't a Melbourne International Film Festival that doesn't go by practically without two Mickey releases. That was my exact thought. Every year there's a Mickey on the on the program. Or more than one. That's Gosh, the thing. Yeah. So, you know, like Audition, Itchy the Killer, mm-hmm. Gozu, uh, One Miss Call, the Dead or Alive trilogy. Mm-hmm. And he does like remakes, pretty good remakes, 30, 13 Assassins, mm-hmm. Harry Kiri, uh, Dead or Alive is the – Yakuza epic, and mm. that was the trilogy, a whole trilogy of movies. Mm. So you know he's done a whole. He was even banned <laughs> from from his his particular part of the anthology series, Masters of Horror. Oh, was well, omitted in certain countries because it was just too much. You know? He also, and then then you go over to the Bird People in China from 1998, which is such a lovely film. Oh, you know, man of many facets. He also did that. Um, speaking of Western, Sukiyaki Western Django. Uh, which yep. is a little bit of an odd film, actually, but yeah, interesting. Very much, it's a western, but and it's kind of a War of the Roses concept, but done as a western with Asian actors and speaking English. I think so. Very interesting. And speaking of wars, he did the Great Yokai War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so he does the supernatural. He's done superhero movies, uh, all sorts yeah. of things. So he's a man of many talents and. A talent for getting into trouble too. Oh, really? Of, oh, with controversial right. mm-hmm. takes on things, <laughs> and uh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I watched the series MPD Psycho, which is a supernatural oh, yeah. detective show, or the really weird—I don't exactly know what to call it. It's called the Visit Visitor Q. Oh, um, strange yeah. stuff in his catalog that scares you to go and watch. It, you know, it stays with you. Like I've auditioned. I still think about that film. It messed me up. <laughs> it's a lot. Flight of the Immortal, the film under discussion here is from 2017, mm-hmm. and it is actually what it says on the tin. Mm. Manji is a samurai who killed his master and his sister. Well. Her, her husband. Yeah. He killed her husband as well. Uh, her, his sister was called Machi, and she became unhinged a bit after that. Yes. Uh, he became a wanted man, and this is all in the uh, the opening scenes. A, a large gang confronts him mm-hmm. and kill his sister. He vows to kill them all. He slays dozens. Oh. Archers Oof. start pecking away at him. Yep. He loses a hand and an eye and, and still battles on yeah. in the most incredible hyperkinetic action. Yeah, yeah. in black, and all in black actually, and white, all rendered in yeah, you're, you're a little grateful for that. Yes. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> you know, and the end scene of that is this huge, big still shot, yeah. maybe maybe twitching a little in the corners and stuff, of limbs and bodies and unbelievable stuff. He's like King Arthur. He slew legions. Yeah. You know? And then a mysterious 800-year-old nun named Yobukoni mm, the shows up. The crone. And infests him with blood worms oh, no. that make him whole again and immortal. Blech. 
And so 50 years later, we're in colour. Yep. <laughs> but but that won't shield us because the rest of the movie's in colour, so plenty of Blood. scope for gore <laughs> yeah. in that. Okay, Blade of the Immortal is set in the Tokugawa Shogunate, and this is roughly from about the 1600s to near the end of the 19th century. In the manga, he's like going to live forever and, um, until he kills a thousand people. Mm, mm. You know, so this one's slightly different. That's not quite the driving force of this one. He meets and goes adventuring with a young girl who's an orphan. She's been orphaned by these evil swordsmen who actually they're more than swordsmen. They are masters of all sorts of weapons. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's a, a feature of their particular Ryu, their school. And they are the Ito Ryu, and basically they are Ronin to start with. They don't have a particular master, but they soon become in with the Shogun. Yeah, yeah. And you know, become like one of the official sword fighting academies. Mm-hmm. And so you know that there's going to be a revenge theme here yes. between Manji, who becomes the bodyguard for Rin, mm. the, the, young the young girl, girl. of yeah. in question. And she's quite a firecracker too. She's a fiery she, one. She's got the bloodlust herself. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the relationship in Kick-Ass, oh, yeah. you know, between the mentor mm. and the, the little girl. Mm. Only that's like a parental thing. And so, of course, poor old Kimura Takuya plays Manji, mm. and he can't die. So, you know, he can sustain enormous quantities of – actually, he can. I, I did look that up. He can be killed, but it requires so much chopping and yep. blending <laughs> and eye through the needle sort of stuff. Right. It's unlikely. It can be, it, it can be done. No, it does actually happen in the film at one stage. Not for him, though. <laughs> so, And – as many Mickey movies are, and this particular story, it plays out in a series of vignettes, mm-hmm. like little anthologies of battles that occur yeah. as you meet the various people from the opposing yes. gang. We're working um, our way through each level boss. Yeah, it's actually, it's a bit video gamey, isn't it? Takuya Kimura is a guy who was a Japanese singer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not unusual. Uh, one of the big boy bands in Asia, SMAP, S-M-A-P. Mm-hmm. And... Also, he has a, a film career too. He was in um, Hero, the drama series uh, Love and Honor in 2006, and he was Howl in Howl's Moving Castle, the voice ah, actor. the Japanese voice actor. Yeah, as opposed to Christian Bale. Yeah. But he also played a very important character, one of the main ones, in uh, Space Battleship Yamato in 2010. Hmm. played uh, the character of uh, Susumu Kodai, like, you know, one of the big main cast of the film. I mean, if you don't count the Yamato, which of course is the star of the film <laughs> and he does video game work and stuff. And he actually really sold the, the character to yeah. me. I'm watching and thinking, yeah, I, I buy you. You've just, you're a little bit awkward in the role and you know, yeah, but yeah. he's there. And I thought they had the physicality for the part too, but I, it's hard to tell sometimes Mikke's uh, choreography and, and direction and that's so fast paced. There's so, lots of chopping and limbs flying and pew, pew, pew. Yeah, hyperkinetic, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, we also have in this uh, playing the young girl Rin Asano, uh, Hana Sugisaki, uh, another um, person who's done a lot of voice acting. She was in the Great Yokai War, so uh, in one of the uh, the iterations of that, and also in movies we've seen recently when Marnie was there, oh. and Mary. And the Witch's Flower, I think it's called. Oh, nice. So yeah, she's done voices in that too. She's quite 
young, she's mm. child actress, all that sort of mm. stuff. But she really sells the role. And the relationship between her and Manji, that is the key point of the film, really, when you think about it. Yeah. We also have, as just to pick out um, two of the other ones mm-hmm. on the opposing side, Sota Fukushi plays Kagahisa and Notsu, and he has been in the Cayman Rider series. Okay. I don't know if you're Not familiar, familiar with that. No. And Erika Toda plays Maki, mm-hmm. and she is an honor bugeisha using the weapon, the long-bladed staff weapon, the Ko Naginata, and this is like a, a female weapon that's yep. even used today in uh, Japanese schools. You'll often see it in the background of Japanese animes about schoolgirls. Right. They're, they're training with the Naganita. And she's a formidable presence in this. And, and introduced in a great way when she appears in the film, she says, forgive the late introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so a really great character. She was in Goemon too, as well as uh, Death Note. Mm which may be familiar to people. So this is a film that plays out in a series of bloody conflicts throughout. Some of them carry more weight than others. A lot of them have different weapons Mm -hmm. because that's the the mark of the school and also the mark of the manga. And I I did find it quite bloody (laughs) because of the immortality, and that's saying something for a Takeshi Mikke film. But it does all have a point and an edge Mm. and a mace and a hammer and all those other things. And I felt that they did actually incorporate a lot of stuff in this that made sense. Like there's that trope of uh, when samurai run into gunpowder weapons, Mm. Mm. and that is quite well deployed here too, I thought. Okay. Does it have an actual ending? Well, it's sort of a vague conclusion in this, Mm. and that suits the storyline because he is immortal after all. Okay. You know? it's quite a long film. It's over two hours. Does that yes. – I actually haven't watched the whole thing, but does that format get tiresome? I don't think so. Mm. Look, if you're if you're used to some of Mickey's longer-winded films, yeah. this one won't phase you. And, you know, you can always take a break. This is on streaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can go off and watch something a little bit more savoury. Make a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is Blade of the Immortal, and it is on SBS On Demand. It's a Takeshi Mikke film. In fact, it's his 100th film. Mm-hmm. It is pretty much a piece with a lot of his other films, unless you uh, include the more mellow ones, in which case you go, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Be warned, it is extremely violent. Yes. And what can I say? Is Takeshi Mikke. You, if you know his work. Yeah. You will know his work. You'll you'll know what you're in for, so (laughs) proceed with caution. Yeah. In other people's cases, abandon hope all year who enter. (laughs) All right. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Two Chanabara movies on SBS On Demand, free for all to watch Mm. in the world. And isn't that an amazing thing? So good. When you think about it. Oh, so chuffed at being able to do that. All right. So we'll go out with a track which I thought – would be appropriate today. It is the, you know, the uh, the song at the end of Blade of the Immortal. There's always got to be one of those. It's Live to Die Another Day, and it's by Miyavi. I suppose I should have used a SMAP song to play off the lead actor or any of the other people in this who can sing, but I didn't. So <laughs> this one actually came out on uh, all-time best day too, but it is actually the song at the end of the film. So live to die another day, which we shall do, <laughs> being zero G. 
Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you also to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, and live to die another day. Until next week, we shall be back. So I'll leave you with some words from Forrest Whitaker from Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Joe Brenetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.